0: Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have our crew here in the studio. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. Philip? Hello, guys.
1: Bob? Good morning, everybody.
0: And then we're going to have Dr. Ted Schroeder join us here in a little bit because we had a conversation with him last week and wanted to follow up on a a couple of those topics about mandatory price reporting. But before he gets here, I had a couple topics for you guys. I wanted to talk about a listener question that we had relative to calving, preventing scours, some of the systems that we've recommended before. We're also going to talk about cornstalk bales. And Philip, I've got some questions for you there. Before we get into those topics, I I wanted to ask you guys, and we're going to have a little, see if you can win a little contest here. I want to see if you can name something that's in your fridge today that none of the rest of us have in our fridge. What unique item do you have in your fridge that you're betting nobody else in this room has in their fridge?
1: Actually, I I do know one. It's. it's, My wife's got on this kick with these like high-protein pancake things, and they're made with They've got bananas in them and protein powder, and it's, I bet you don't have that
0: in your fridge.
1: In the fridge,
0: okay. she,
2: yeah, makes, it, she
1: makes a bunch of heads.
2: All right, that's one point for Bob. Does it have to be my food item or just no. in my <laughs>
0: fridge? Yeah, Bob right. didn't use his food item. Nope. Yeah, my
2: my wife's a kombucha drinker. I'm guessing nobody else has kombucha in their fridge. Yeah, I don't even know what mm, that is. No, <laughs> you're, gonna, you're you're
0: going to have to give us more explanation there, Brian. What is that? I uh, it's it's like some, a tea, right? It's a fermented
2: tea of some sort. I. I actually don't. It's know. green. Is it no, it comes in all kinds of flavors: hmm. raspberry, something, something, hibiscus, something. Yeah. <laughs> this game's a lot
0: easier than I thought it would be because I was I, all I was thinking was mustard and pickles earlier. So <laughs> I don't, you guys probably have those. We might have that.
3: Well, you, you mentioned pickles. I've got homemade pickles sitting in the fridge that Levi wanted to make, and then he ended up getting braces, and so he hasn't been able to eat it. So it's still sitting in the fridge in the vinegar and dill, and
0: you'll have vinegar. to go again because we have homemade yep. pickles. Oh yep.
3: no, still from the summer? Yeah, man, I don't know what else I've got in there that nobody else has to have in there.
0: Well, I was hoping to find something in you guys' fridge that I could ask you to bring to work, but I think <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe okay. <laughs> <Probably> good, <huh? laughs> I don't know that we have anything else in there. So let let's talk let's talk about calving. Because we had a listener question. We've talked about the Sand Hills calving system previously. And the Sand Hills calving system, to prevent scours, one of the th- recommendations is essentially keep older calves away from younger calves. And the listener question was, I have a spring and a fall herd. They run as one group so that I can more efficiently manage my grazing. I only have a few cows that will calve in the fall. When they calve in the fall... I've got older calves that would be five to seven months old out there from my spring calves. Can I still do the Sandhills calving system? Do I have to worry about those older calves? Bob, I'll go to you first, and then Brian, I want to get your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, there's several really nice things about the Sandhills systems, but one is to keep young calves away from slightly older calves. And, and that's, I guess I would say that's why I'm not too worried about these five or six or seven month old calves. It, there seems to be kind of a peak level of shedding of the germs that cause scours at you know somewhere around i don't know past 3 weeks of age and up to the first couple of months of age but then then as the animal becomes more mature and their immune system becomes more mature and their diet changes all of those things make an older calf not nearly as much of a risk to shed and again it's not that they shed no germs that can cause scours but much less they're more like an adult
0: so, I was going to say, same way with cows. I mean, right. cows are still shed all of the viruses and bacteria that we think about causing scours, they overwintered in the, in the cow. cow. Yeah,
1: and, right. and so they're there, but just not in high numbers, yeah. but a young calf. And by a young calf, I mean, three, four, five, six, seven weeks of age. Yeah. They actually have way more than an adult and, as far as shedding those types of. And of if they become animals, ill, they're even higher replicators. Yeah. Brian, what are
0: your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of agree with Bob. Like a five-month-old KF is almost moving into that category of it's – more of an adult and you're, you have the risk no matter what, right? You're going to have adults in there. There's some level of risk. I guess my only hesitation a little bit is we're ha we have newborn calves going into the fall winter and they're going to be concentrating in areas where we're feeding. And so the purpose of the sandhill system is to spread them out on clean pasture. And we're probably not going to get that. So, but I, I also get You've got just a small percentage of your herd that's in that situation. You're balancing what risk am I willing to take with what's the practical, what can I actually do with my pastures? And it sounds like this is kind of a situation where it's gonna require a lot of labor, for a small number of animals. And so I'm not exactly sure without looking at the situation, knowing the numbers, I could say this is the better trade-off or this one is. They just need to understand there's there's going to be risk no matter what. But when you're this isn't spring calving where we're moving them out onto green pasture. This is fall calving where they're going to be concentrating around feeding
3: areas, so the risk does go up slightly with that.
0: Good, good points, Brian.
3: Philip, you have any thoughts on this? Well, does it? I mean, does it depend on where you're grazing? I mean, if you've had scours issues in the past in that in that pasture, is it how long do I have to keep those calves off of that pasture to minimize that risk?
1: Yeah, the, the great thing is not very long. Most of these pathogens don't live very long on the ground itself. So so, if I
0: had scours this spring, am I okay back on that this fall? Yes,
1: absolutely. Now, it is interesting, though. Some pastures tend to have more of a problem than other pastures, and it's not really because the germs stay over, but there's something about that pasture. It it tends to not drain very well. It holds water. It holds water, something like that. So there can be pastures that are worse than others, but it's not really because the germs held over. It's just something about that pasture is a little different.
2: So... I'm gonna mostly agree with Bob again. Um, it, it's they don't hang out in the environment long when it's warm and sunny out, but when you get into cold temperatures, some some of those like especially with salmonellas and things like that, they will hang out in the environment for
0: quite a while. And so, so so March, cold, wet, not freezing, not really hot, and not a lot of sunshine.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking more like September, October, and if we have. Animal shedding, then they may overwinter. So yeah, I, I'm i again, I'm a little concerned, but I generally agree with what Bob said.
0: It's okay to disagree with Bob. Yeah, we've all we've all done it.
1: <laughs> so yes, you have.
0: <laughs> so so let's talk uh, a little bit about cornstalk bales. And I bring this up, Philip, because we we've talked about we have all driving around here locally have seen more cornstalk bales than what we would on a, on a normal year. Sometimes they're used for bedding because they're good bedding material. But I suspect they're also being used for feeding this year, either to supplement, to augment, provide something for cows. Tell us a little bit about it, how, how much nutritional value is there in a cornstalk bale?
3: Yeah, I would agree with you, Brad. I think this year, particularly with the dry weather and the lack of forage, and summer or fall pasture is not really there. Guys are baling up corn stalks to, for feed. I mean, they've got to have something to try to get those cows through the winter, and so. You know, we talked about when you, you graze corn stalks and you turn cows out there, you know, as we start to get more rain and stuff in, in October and November, the nutritional value of those corn stalks decreases pretty rapidly. But if I bale them up, I can help preserve the nutritional value of those corn stalks. The The issue about bailing them up is most cases, guys are bailing the corn stalks after they've harvested the corn. And so you're baling the husks and the leaves and the stalks. The stalks have very little nutritional value. When you graze corn stalks, the cows are consuming the husks and the leaves, which have decent nutritional value. The stalks are very lignified and very indigestible, and so there's not much nutritional value in the stalk. And so I don't know what the proportions are, but obviously when you bale it up, what you're feeding the animal is a much higher proportion of stalks than what they would consume if you were grazing the cornfield. And so thinking about nutritional value of those, it's going to be less than what you're going to get out of the grazing of the corn stalks. And you're probably going to have quite a bit of wastage in those bales unless you grind them and you'll know, add some supplement or something in and, and do a, a mixed ration with that that uh, corn stock bale. So where I leave
0: that, where I feed them is going to be important because there's going to be a lot of residue left behind that, mm-hmm. that cows won't eat. And mm-hmm. I I shouldn't count on that for their sole source of nutrition.
3: No, you're going to need the supplement, especially once we get into colder weather. They're going to need well they need protein anytime, anyway. They're grazing grazing corn stalks or feeding cornstalk bales because corn stock residue has low protein, but then once we get into third trimester and you've got cows going through the winter and colder weather and uh, more maintenance energy requirements, you're going to need to supplement some energy, whether that's corn stock bale and a grass hay bale, or that's a corn stock bale and then a commercial supplement of some kind.
0: Bob, Brian, any health concerns with feeding these?
3: Well,
2: what about what about nitrates, Philip? Are we concerned about nitrates with corn
3: bales? Normally, no but this particular this year with the drought if you had a poor corn crop and kind of basically kind of like a failed corn crop but you put all of the nitrogen fertilizer on that crop back in the spring then that could definitely be a problem because that plant took up a lot of that nitrogen but then didn't use it for anything, and just, so just held it. Yes, so just. The good, uh-huh.
1: the good thing is we can send those samples from those bales into the lab and get an idea of where we are with that. You know, some people talk about using, you know, um, ammoniation, ammoniation of of corn stalks, and and I've I've been involved more with ammoniation of wheat straw, but I know you can do it with corn stalks as well. There's some challenges with that, and and you, this the reason we're talking about this is. Hay supplies are in short supply, and they're really expensive. Well, ammonia is really expensive, right? So, anhydrous ammonia is really expensive too. So, you need to really think through the the costs of uh, any treatment you might do, and and the additional benefit in the quality of the forage. So.
0: And for specifics on that, we talked to Dr. Justin Wagner from Southwest Kansas last year about ammoniation of forages, and and he went through and gave us some details on what to watch for and how to handle that safely, both for the people and for the animals. So if you want to find more details, go back and listen to that. And appreciate you sharing those those thoughts with us, Philip. Let's let's take a quick break. We'll get Dr. Schroeder in here, and we'll talk prices we had dr ted schroeder on last week and happy to have him back with us again because we had some follow-up questions and actually after the podcast we got to discussing and we talked a little about feeder calf marketing we didn't really talk about fed cattle marketing which actually there's several policies proposals that have come out which affect the entire industry and there's some acronyms i'm going to throw out and ted i'm going to have you define them and open this conversation but i've heard MPR, I've heard LMR, I've heard other things reported to price or reporting and mandatory. What do what do those things stand for?
4: So yeah, the the MPR was what we used to call livestock mandatory reporting, the LMR now and MPR just referring to mandatory price reporting. They're both referring to the same effort that USDA ag marketing service follows to collect from qualifying packers, every transaction on fed cattle purchase they make, as well as every transaction on boxed beef products that they sell. And every day, those data are dumped twice daily from the packers system to the USDA. The USDA then compiles those data into various market reports. And it's what comprises basically the USDA's entire uh, website availability of market reports for all of the regions in the U.S. that they, that they report fed cattle price data for, uh, as well as volumes. And that's why it's, it's a little broader than just price, uh, as well as weights and other things that, are, that those cattle are being marketed as. And in addition, there's a very extensive box beef and, and meat price reporting system that's also part of this uh, daily Reporting by USDA, it it really provides the basis for market information that's absolutely essential for markets to work and perform their 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 function, and for uh, producers to to be able to know and understand where the market is at at that given point in time.
1: So, would would you say that that's the information that I? that everyone would need to basically kind of be gauging supply and demand because that's what I'm ultimately trying to kind of figure out is I I can't control supply and demand, but I'd sure like to know supply and demand.
4: It's certainly the most important information that a producer is using to gauge, you know, what they should do next. What should be their purchasing strategy for cattle coming in? What should be their merchandising strategy for the cattle they have in their yard when should they be expanding when should they hold tight so it's 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 critical for their information set relative to the market value
1: so are there some changes that have been happening lately or is this is this the same system that's been in place for quite a while what's the history of of this market reporting
4: so so it's a it's a really interesting reporting system because it lmr itself started in 2001 in terms of actual reporting. That's when we first had our, our first LMR report showing up. Before that, everything was voluntarily reported. And so there's a lot of concern before LMR that there could be selective reporting. It, it's the nature of just who you get on the phone that day and, and what they tell you. Well, LMR was a quantum change because now it said you are required to report all transaction data electronically twice daily that that's important because it it now says there is no filtering it's it's the actual transactions USDA then uh, reports those data so that that's a really important component of LMR and and why you know we think it has increased confidence and and uh, certainly information depth in the industry. Um, further the the interesting thing about it though is if you think about how cattle have changed in how they're marketed and valued today since 2001 since 2001 the last 22 23 years we we have changed cattle marketing dramatically by moving toward grid pricing, value-based pricing systems. Back in the early 2000s, most fed cattle were still sold on a commodity basis, live or dressed, negotiated pricing. There was very little differentiation in the industry across quality grade, yield grade, those kinds of of pricing signals. Today, we flip this thing. 65, well, it's actually closer to 70% of our cattle in any week are now traded on a value-based grid where the cattle are being valued differently, individual carcasses even, not just pen level, but individual carcass level differentiation in value associated with the quality of that animal. So that one is challenging to the, to the way USDA traditionally has collected and reported LMR data.
1: So yeah, traditionally, we reported pounds. I mean, really just either carcass weight or live weight. And now how, it does make it more complex. So have, how have they addressed that?
4: Well, the, the first thing is, yeah, if you're selling live or dressed, average pricing, you go across the country on any given day and, and you're having a $1 to $2 a hundred weight variation in price. That's live, maybe three or four on a It's it's very small price ranges when we move over to grid pricing routinely what we see in the USDA report is a price range high to low on any given quality category that exceeds typically 60 70 even80 dollars a hundredweight that's the range on a dress basis so you can see right away that there is an incredible amount of variation in prices as you go to grid versus live, uh, are dressed average.
0: And are those grid prices, are they influenced by the live prices at all, or are they are they completely separate? So you said there's a lot more range, so quality variance in the cattle is driving that, it presumably based on the grid. But it, is it still tied to the live price in some way, or are they completely independent?
4: Well, Many of the formula trade, which is what the grid type typically is, there's a negotiated grid, we can talk about that separate, but the, the main bucket of cattle, that's the 65% of our herd being marketed as, is what's referred to as formula. And formula, most of those are then grid-priced also. But the formula trade itself and, and part of the dialogue that's going on around, you know, what are the implications of formula pricing for the industry, many of the formulas use the cash-negotiated prices of USDA to establish as a base price. And then they adjust that base price according to the quality grade, yield grade, and other factors
0: of that individual pin. So so if I'm following sorry, Phil, if I'm following what you have said so far, over the last twenty years we've shifted from live base to the majority of the cattle being sold on a formula or grid. However, the formula or grid base price is still left with those who are selling live, which is now a a smaller and smaller percent of the cattle. Is that am I keeping up?
4: Well, the live And dressed, it's both, both are negotiated, and you bring in the negotiated grid with this. We've maintained for about the last 12 years or so around 20%, roughly, it varies. Around 20% of our fed cattle, 25 probably actually with negotiated grid, are still being negotiated on every single transaction the the base price now i, I want to add to that though just another why i talk about negotiation all grids are negotiated too so there's this sentiment that the only cattle that are providing price discovery negotiation are those in the live and dressed negotiated cash market it's really not true because all formula cattle all forward contract cattle there's a negotiation process that goes on. It may not be on every single transaction, but it certainly happens ongoingly and, and, and periodic throughout the time timeframe of, of, of negotiating various
0: aspects of that relationship. So even the grid you negotiate it just may not be for just you're not going to do that for just one pen or one load but you may have to renegotiate it in the future as conditions change is that what you're saying
4: absolutely and and those renegotiations i'm talking to cattle feeders a lot that that are in grid relationships formula relationships And they say we actually are the ones that call for the renegotiation as often as it is the buyer, the packer. So it very much is a two-way. We renegotiate. It isn't always at a set date. I was just talking to a cattle feeder last week, said we've already renegotiated twice this year in 2023. And, you know, may have more before, before the year's over because times change things change and uh, and the, it, it requires the need to revisit the, the market relationship
3: I was gonna so I gonna go back to the thing you said earlier so you said that you know live cash price and dress price there's not a whole lot of variation there and but then on a grid we're getting a lot of variation because we're on an individual animal and we're getting premiums and discounts on individual animals but that base price on a grid, is it more variable as than a uh, cash price on a, on a live basis, or is that base price for the grid that same kind of small change of one to $2 across the country?
4: Interesting, a new r- release of USDA's relatively new, Philip, that, that is now available to us is the Cattle Contract Library. And the reason I mentioned it in that, in that conversation, it's our first report that details a bit more where these base prices come from and what they represent. And uh, we had a base price report before that, but it didn't describe the source of the base price. And and what we see now is that roughly 80% of these base prices are coming from a USDA regional report. So could be, and the most common one is Nebraska, that they lead the way, next is Texas. And next, our sorry, Kansas is usually next, and then Texas. Those three together, those three regional price reports represent the, the lion's share. There's there's a, a small number in Iowa, but it's really those three states that are that are providing base price information for formula trade.
3: Those base prices in those reports are based on live and negotiated prices, or just everything.
4: It, it varies across contracts in fact if you look at the cattle contract library something that was surprising to me when it was introduced earlier this year there's about of this the cattle contract library only is is for the top four packers so it represents only the top four packers but i think last week there were 233 contracts summarized in the cattle contract library the point of that is there's this is back to our you know lot of different ways to value my cattle 233 contracts across those four packers tells me there are a large number of variations in how i'm establishing negotiating my my relationship with that packer part of that variation for sure is base price
0: differentiation good information ted Appreciate you sharing. There's there's more information on Ag Manager info and, and always good to talk through the different pricing because that impacts all the way back to the feeder calf stage. And I appreciate you spending some more time with us this morning to talk through this. As always, if you have questions, discussion points, or things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.